Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecher. And together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Homebrew All-Stars, where we pick the brains of 25 of the world's best brewers and give you their tips, tricks, and secrets. Now, between the two of us, we have nearly 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for wacky beer. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and finding a way to check it out. Okay, on today's episode, well, we got a few announcements to make. We got a little bit of feedback to do. We're going to hit the pub because, well, there was a lot of beer news in the yeah, last there couple is, weeks here. Got a little bit of library time, some idea about using lasers for better beer. And then finally, a quick uh, run over to the brewery to talk a little bit about uh, Sierra Nevada's new series. And then in the lounge, we're going to, you know, well, we're going to stop, stop in and talk with Brian Haight of, of a certain forgotten blog. It's a little bit of a joke. We'll get there in a moment. <laughs> but we're going to talk about the lager yeast confusion that we had the other day. And, well, you know, try and get down to the bottom of exactly what the heck goes on with yeast classification and, well, what are sort of yeast tricks that we can learn from him. Yeah, he's a whole lot smarter than we are. That doesn't take much. Nope. All right. And then, of course, we'll answer your questions. We'll give you a quick tip, something other. And then you're back onto your way to your brew day, we hope. <laughs> yeah, right. But uh, before we get into all that, we want to have you listen to a few words from some of the people who make this show possible. This episode is brought to you by Pico Brew, makers of the Zymatic and Pico Brewing Systems. The brewing systems of the future are here now. Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota 4. When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association, a community of more than 46,000 beer lovers. Since 1978, the AHA and its members have worked to promote and celebrate the homebrewing hobby and community. Join today for six issues of Zymergy Magazine, AHA member discounts on beer, food, and brewing supplies, access to exclusive events and competitions, and a bunch of other cool stuff that'll take too long to list here. Head over to homebrewersassociation.org or experimentalbrew.com and get yourself a membership. And by you, our listeners, go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support. Hey, we're back. Thanks for sticking around. And we got a few announcements before we go on. That's right. Announcement time. So first things, if you did not listen to last week's episode of The Brew Files, that was episode 28, where Denny and I dig deep in how you go big. Because after all, it's the end of winter, or almost the end of winter, and it's time for you to replenish your winter cellar so that when next winter rolls around, you've got plenty of well-aged, well-drinking, big beer to get into. And uh, between the two of us, we cover uh, Denny's Old Stoner Barley Wine, and then my massive Falcon's Claws of 14-plus percent lager. Both of those recipes are on the website, but go give a listen to the podcast as well. That's episode 28 of The Brew Files, Go Big. 
And coming up next time here on Experimental Brewing, it is episode 60, and that means it's time for another all Q&A episode. So we need your questions. You can do it the easy way and call us at 626-765-1AL and leave us a voicemail. Or you can shoot us an email at questions at experimentalbrew.com. You can hit us up on Facebook. Hey, you can even give us a smoke signal. Uh, I, we'll figure out how to interpret it. Can I just say I'm surprised that it's episode 60 next and we kind of totally forgot about it. It slipped up on us. So <laughs> get, get us your questions. And yeah, use the voicemail option because that makes Denny do more work. And I like that. Yeah, right. Uh, you know what? And uh, it's just one of many things I forget about. <laughs> <laughs> it's how you make it through the world. That's right. Also, speaking of other things that you may have missed, if you did miss it, over on our YouTube channel for Experimental Brewing, you know, where we occasionally post videos, including, you know, fun things like a Randall Infuser, we actually put up a YouTube video of one of my Troubleshooters Corner sessions that I do for the Maltos Falcons. What was special about this Troubleshooters Corners was that all the beers came from a listener of the podcast, Joey Liston. Joey doesn't have a homebrew club next to him, so he asked if he could send me his beers so that, that we could do an evaluation. And boy, did he send me a box of beers. So we got to dig into them, and and all I can tell you is Joey did a really great job. He didn't need much troubleshooting. And in fact, the Dark Mild that we kicked off the video with, he just told me got a 41 in a competition. Whoa, so good on you, Joey. You. Yeah, so thank you, Joey, for sending me the beers. Uh, folks, go watch the show on YouTube. We're going to try and get a, f a little bit more content out there on YouTube this year. Just a little more video, because... After all, what you really need in your life is more of my voice, <laughs> augmented by my pretty, pretty face. Yeah, right. And uh, I want you all to notice that I don't make you suffer through me in those YouTube videos. So uh, it's all on Drew. And if you tried to order from Atlantic Brew Supply and use the discount code there, surprise, surprise, it was broken. But they've got it fixed now. So you can go to Atlantic Brew Supply, put in an order, use the code BREWFILES at checkout, and you'll get a 15% discount, which is good stuff. So please support them and use that code BREWFILES to get 15% off. Yeah, that's not too bad for a discount for your first order. So go use BREWFILES. Right. And by the way, go listen to BREWFILES. You know you want to. <laughs> that too. Don't forget that you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the Amazon, AHA, or BYO links on our website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Habitat for Humanity, a truly, truly great organization that uh, fights homelessness by helping people build their own houses and I just cannot say enough about what a cool organization this is. Uh, Jimmy Carter worked for them, and he signed the homebrew bill into law, so we got to support that. And uh, on top of that, my mother built houses for Habitat for Humanity. So come on, please support my dear old mom and Jimmy and kick in a buck or two for Habitat for Humanity. Yeah, the houses are probably safer if I kick in a buck or two than if I swing a hammer. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm sure that's true for me, too. Now on to feedback, or as we like to say here on the show, feedback. feedback. Our piece of feedback this week comes from Eric Pierce. He actually sent this in a little while ago, and uh, Eric is one of our Igors. And this is all about the New England IPA predictions and well, just a little something extra that I, that I like to throw in there. He says, I've been thinking about your prediction for New England IPA to begin to fade into obscurity, and I'm just not seeing it. As for the comparison to the black IPA, there is nowhere near the same buzz for that style. 
The talk about New England IPA has been ongoing for years now. Did anyone build a brand around Black IPA and grow year after year? Did that style have fanatic fans who waited in line outside the brewery to buy that beer as fresh as possible? That's what I've seen happening over the last few years with the New England IPA and continued growth nationwide and globally, too. I think the only thing that about New England IPA that will begin to subside in 2018 will be how much beer writers, pundits, and podcasters go on and on about it as the style settles into ubiquity. Yeah, nobody asked for a cloudy, hoppy juice bomb of a beer, but when they tried it, they asked for more and kept asking and asking, and they told their friends. Sure, like any other trend, what's hot now will give way to new things later. You can't be the new thing for very long. But things that get this big just don't go away. They evolve, and to Drew's point, the good ones will stay and the bad ones die out, but the extent to which the bad ones just get replaced by something better, well, we'll just have to wait and see. So any thoughts on that, Denny? You know, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. It's a prediction. It's a guess. Uh, I'm still sticking with my prediction that we're going to see it uh, decline in popularity, but probably not go away, kind of the same way as Black IPAs did, uh, despite uh, Eric's protestations that it's not like Black IPA. But who knows? We'll just have to wait and see. See, and I agree with Eric's uh, protestations about Black IPA, because I remember Black IPA was, uh, you know, it came up and then it cratered. But we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I mean, after all, just look at what just got released, what, earlier this month, Sierra Nevada released a a hazy IPA in cans. Sierra Nevada. Yeah, that's that's true. That means that they know how to jump on the bandwagon. Uh, We'll (laughs) see if that's still the case in a year. Indeed. Now, Eric also included a PS that I, that I absolutely had to read because it's one of my favorite things when we get a feedback uh, on this sort of stuff. It says here, PS, remember Abbott's vacation from the pitch rate experiment we did? I reserved three gallons of that and added a pack of Brett C post-fermentation. Eight months later, and some apricot additions, and boom, Abbott's extended vacation. The Big Hop competition was nice, nice enough, and he's talking about entering New England IPA in the Big Hop competition that's happening this month. The Big Hop competition was nice enough to include 28B mixed fermentation sour beer, so I'll enter it and see what kind of feedback I get. Eric, I want to hear what you get. Yeah, me too. Because I like it. Yeah, I think that's a cool idea, Eric. Good luck, and let us know how it goes. There we go. Denny, you know what it is? Could it be time to go have a beer? It's Beer 30. Ooh, Beer 30. Okay, stick around. We're going to head over to the pub, and we'll be right back to talk about the beer life. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add Whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. We're back, and we're sitting in the pub here at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, everywhere, because we're going to be talking some worldwide beer today. What are you drinking, Drew? Well, I'm drinking a beer that 
when I saw it on the menu, I I really had to laugh, and then I ordered it, and I was actually really impressed with it. So, if you follow me on Facebook, you know that I have been trekking my way through all the official member breweries of the LA County Brewers Guild. I am now at brewery number 63 of 66. I only have three left to go before somebody opens a new one. You're going to have to move and them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> time, to, time to move to another place to go try the breweries. But... One of the breweries I went to uh, for, I think, brewery number 62 was actually Pocock Brewing Company up in Santa Clarita, California, just north of me. And they had a really impressive selection of beer, but this one I saw on the menu, and it just, it amused me to no end. It's their Saison Gimlet. And it combines two of my favorite things, Saison and gin. And it is, uh, Gimlet is a traditional cocktail that's basically uh, lime juice and gin juice. And so this Saison Gimlet combined their French-style Saison with an infusion of juniper and then also uh, a hit of lime. And I have to admit, I was, I was really impressed with it. I'd, I would like the lime character to be just pulled back a little bit and a little more of the juniper. But if you know a Gimlet, Gimlets are very, very limey, so it's very true to the style. So I'm really amused by this, and it's actually really refreshing here in a cold, cold Southern California winter. Wow, that sounds actually very, very tasty, you know? Kind of kind of up my alley, too, taste-wise. Oh, yeah. And for you, sir? I am drinking an Ale Song beer. You guys have heard me talk about Ale Song over and over again. This time, I'm having one of their Pinot Gris Terroir beers, which is a Brett farmhouse ale that is aged in oak barrels with Pinot Gris juice. And... Uh, this happens because uh, Ale Song has situated their lovely country tasting room right next to King Estates Winery, one of the largest wineries in the state, and they've kind of developed a symbiotic relationship here. So uh, they were aged in oak barrels acquired from King Estates and uh, with some King Estates Pinot Gris juice added to the beer, and wow! I am loving this stuff. It is delicious. It is a great beer to uh, to pair with foods. Uh, I could see some fish with this, maybe. Um, and incidentally, Ale Song was just awarded by Rate Beer the title of being the sixth best new brewery in the world. So we're real lucky to have that here in Eugene, and uh, I'll be heading out there next month for their winter bottle release and seeing what kind of tasty things I can bring back from there. Yeah, I think you still owe me some more ale song bottles. Yeah, I probably do. Uh, you know, um, I, I, I guess you'll just have to wait. I'm bad at waiting. <laughs> more and more now, now. Yeah, well, okay, but you're still going to have to wait. Okay, well, then if I'm going to have to wait, then it's going to be time for me to pull out you know, my personal hero, his battle cry. And my personal hero is the Tick. For those of you who remember the cartoon, and his battle cry was spoon. <laughs> There's a spoon in the news, and that spoon just happens to belong to a good friend of ours and a good friend of all homebrewers. That would be Charlie Papazian's spoon, and Charlie was actually in the news twice this past week. Uh, one for his spoon, which is now in the Smithsonian. <laughs> That's pretty cool, man. That's like right up there with Julia Child donating her kitchen. So if you guys remember, two years ago or so, the Smithsonian announced that they were going to hire somebody to do beer archive work for actually archiving and cataloging the history of the American brew scene, including craft brewing. And they hired a really great woman, uh, Teresa McCullough, 
to handle that aspect of things. And so as part of her job, hunting around for things, of course, you can't tell the story of modern craft beer without telling the story of homebrewing. And so she got Charlie to actually donate a bunch of his items from his early homebrewing days into the Smithsonian so that they can be part of an exhibit and part of you know the history of America. And so part of that was Charlie's charismatic spoon. And at least that's how he refers to it, because it's the spoon that was handled by everybody. And everybody got a chance to turn, uh, take a turn around stirring the pot. So I thought that was pretty nifty. I think some of his brew logs also, or actually his brew logs aren't there yet, because he says he's still using them. That is super cool. Uh, and the other Charlie news is it was just announced that Charlie will be finally leaving the Brewers Association next year on January 23rd, 2019. Charlie is going to finally relax, don't worry, and have a homebrew without having to worry about what the rest of the world is doing. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, I mean, it like he's he's been gallivanting around the world, so this just really this really frees him up to gallivant around the world <laughs> kind of guilt-free. Plus, I mean, also, <laughs> yeah, I think by the time he retires, he'll be 70, and he will have spent more than 40 years uh, helping shepherd the American homebrewing scene and craft brewing scene as well. I do want to mention, though, that uh, Charlie will be giving the keynote speech at the uh, Homebrew Con in Portland this summer. So if you're going, you'll have a chance to hear Charlie talk about where he's been and uh, maybe even where he's going in the future. Yeah, and of course, I think it's funny if you watch him when he shows up to Homebrew Con in the uh, club night, you know, just the way that he kind of moves in a crowded bubble. <laughs> I really kind of just has this mass of people around him the whole time. Well, in other things that are going away or have gone away, I uh, was doing my forum rounds the other day and went to log on to the forum at More Beer, and it was gone. That was uh, one of the first forums I was ever on 20 years ago, and uh, it has definitely seen uh, reduced usage the last few years. And apparently they've just decided to kill it off completely because people weren't using it. Uh, so if you were a Morbier forum user, too bad. It ain't there now. Yep. And, I mean, if you go to where it had been, it just redirects back to their website now. And this does bring up, like, sort of a larger point. Uh, you know, since Denny spends a lot of time on homebrew forums and, you know, we both moderate the HA forum, uh, there's a definite sort of dearth of traffic happening on, on these forums now. I mean, back in the day, the Brewing Network Forum, the Green Board, yeah, all, a good number of these forums all seem to be down in terms of overall traffic. And it kind of makes me wonder, okay, so are the forums just a, a dead thing of the past? Is this now, you know, a communication methodology that's going the way of the BBS or, you know, the Telegraph? It, it, it could be. Uh, it is cyclical, though, because... Uh, I, we go through periods when there are more posts and times when there are fewer posts. Uh, you know, during during the winter and especially right after Christmas, when there are people who've just gotten brewing supplies, traffic picks up. But, yeah, I would say that probably in general it's not like it was 10 years ago. But what is? Well, I was going to say, I mean, I think, what, homebrew talk is still going pretty strong. And a couple of the forums are still in pretty decent shape, but where I have noticed a lot of that traffic that I think has moved to is, you know, to like different Facebook homebrewing groups. But even then, I mean, like to me, 
I find the Facebook homebrew groups to be a little bit less useful. Yeah, I, I agree. It's harder to find things. Um, it's harder to know that you're getting really accurate information. It, it's a great way to socialize, but I still think that the forums may have an edge over them. Yeah, but then again, maybe we're just old and cranky and dinosaur kit in our ways. No, not me. It says the guy who just posted about grumpy so-and-so day. <laughs> yeah, right. And speaking of grumpy, this wasn't a good oh. week to be in the brewery business, huh? Yeah, well, so in the past couple of weeks, I mean, just to give you an idea, this was just kind of brutal. Now, remember what we we talked about, like, you know, things are going to be happening because it's getting harder and harder for people to find enough shelves to put beer on, enough taps and whatnot. And so the market's becoming tight and some of the market is shifting you know, to say, you know, those local tap rooms, you know, going to, you know, going and doing what I'm doing, go visit all 66 open breweries in your, in your area. Well, that takes away from the, the beer sales that go to any of the sort of the, the mid majors. So a lot of, a lot of stuff that we're seeing in the past week. So Green Flash, for instance, you know, Green Flash, which is a great brewery and I loved them when they were under the, the sort of the, the brewing provenance of uh, Chuck Silva, who's decamped to go up to Paso Robles and open up his own little brewery. They announced that they have their two breweries, but they're pulling out of 33 states and concentrating their distribution much more locally around the two areas where they have their breweries on both the West Coast and the East Coast. And I mean, if you told me that that was going to happen, you know, a couple of years ago, I mean, I, I, I know Green Flash has made a couple of you know, what seemed to be missteps and some different things going on that just didn't quite work out right. But man, when Green Flash's West Coast IPA was the thing that really set, you know, sort of the popular notion of the West Coast IPA for a lot of people, the idea that they would be pulling back to or pulling back out of 33 states would have absolutely shocked me. And then the other one was also in that same sort of range, like, you know, the, you know, definitely not your local microbrewery anymore, sort of a little more regional is Mendocino Brewing Company seems to be caught up in a whole bunch of troubles with their majority owner, uh, Vijay, out of India, who is fighting extradition from London to India for, I think it's bribery and corruption charges. And so both the Mendocino Tap Room and Saratoga Brewing Company, which are both owned by the same group, both unexpectedly close. Saratoga did a lot of contract brewing business, and they gave pretty much all their accounts... 72 hours to come and drag their beer uh, their beer out of the tanks out of Saratoga. So you had a lot of tanker trucks suddenly scrambling over to, to Saratoga to pull beer. And yeah, it kind of took everybody completely by surprise. And then also in that same uh, mid-major type area, Smutty Nose. Smutty Nose, which is a classic brand and makes one of the best brown ales I think I've ever had. They announced that they're putting themselves up for auction. After a you know basically a couple of years after doing an expansion in the brewery and opening up a new restaurant, and in a lot of ways it's very reminiscent of you know that 1996 period where we had a lot of people so you know kind of expand themselves, take on capital debt, and then suddenly find that the market itself isn't actually there to support what they were doing. I think Smutty Nose said something like their plans were based on the idea of 20 years of growth, which that's just unrealistic, isn't it? Well, I mean, it's, it's optimistic, and, and <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I could see I could see where you'd want to believe it, but you know, the idea that now, like a lot of these mid tier breweries are starting are going to start getting squeezed. Looking at the acquisitions over the past couple of years, some of those start to make some sense because, man, you need to have some ready access to capital in order to survive a tightening market. 
Yeah, and let's face it, there is only so much market out there. No matter how many new craft beer drinkers come in, the way that breweries have been opening and expanding, I just see more capacity than I see consumption. Yep. So in other words, uh, boys and girls, it's time to consume more. And by the way, this is not just happening with the craft beer world. Uh, PBR also just announced that they're they're laying off 18% of their workforce. So it's it's hitting uh, across the, the whole market of people who aren't either super big or super small. Every time I say something about how I see the market contracting, I get told by people that, oh, I'm crazy, I'm being pessimistic. But I got to say that that's what uh, reality seems to be telling us. Well, I'm not sure the market itself is actually contracting as much as the the share of the pie that everybody's getting is much tinier. Yeah, and maybe maybe it'd be, it's more accurate to say that the market isn't expanding as quickly as it used to, mm-hmm. so people who counted on that are being caught out in the cold. Yeah, and then also I think you're seeing the shift of drinking patterns to go more hyper-local, because, I mean, I know I do. Yeah, me so, too. Me too. It, it makes sense that this is going to start putting the squeeze, which is unfortunate, because these are a lot of businesses that have been built up over time with a lot of hard work, so it's always sad to see. But that's the bad news. We figure that we can't leave you on bad news here in the pub because that will just make you want to have more beer. Oh, wait. <laughs> maybe maybe we should leave you on bad news so that we can help all these mid-majors. No, 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 man. This is a, this is some really cool news. Uh, you remember about, uh, oh, maybe two, three episodes back, we were talking about how Russian River was doing an initiative to uh, help raise money for uh, all the wildfire expenses that were going on around there. Yeah, it it was put under their label of Sonoma Pride, which also has actually been picked up by a a couple of other people. So Russian River announced that they were going to do Sonoma Pride and all the proceeds going to uh, a fund for the victims. And uh, they just announced uh, like they had bypassed like or they had surpassed some insane goal and are now at what level? They are at 900,000 bucks for uh, victims of the wildfire, and that is just stunning and cool beyond words. So thank you, Russian River, for being good people. I know. Yeah, Natalie and Vinny are awesome. So I love the fact that they did that effort. And, of course, I mean, look, I mean, Nap- uh, this has been a hell of a year for California in terms of forest fires between the Napa-Sonoma area and then also down closer here to me in the Santa Barbara region that just got completely wrecked, too. Yay. Good uh, good thing for charity. Yeah, really, really, guys. Uh, thank you, Russian River. Uh, it's nice to see people with a conscience, and it's even better when people with a conscience brew incredibly good beer. There we go. All right, I think it's time for us to go and do more work. <laughs> do more work? You mean like in the library? Something like that. Okay. Gotta hit those books. <laughs> That's right. We're going to take a quick break so some of our sponsors can tell you about their products. And when we come back, we're going to be in the library talking about beer and bread. We'll be right back. YCH Hops is a grower-owned global hop company located in the Pacific Northwest with a mission to connect family hop farms with the world's finest brewers. YCH Hops is thrilled about the release of their newest product, Cryo Hops, to both commercial and home brewers, providing intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Visit YCHHops.com to find a homebrew retail store near you.
we have made our way over here to the library. We're sitting among the stacks of books, and we're reading this story about using lasers to make better beer and bread, uh, thanks to the University of Copenhagen Department of Food Science and Aarhus University Department of Chemistry. Uh, why don't you run it down there, Drew? But first, got to give a shout-out to my good friend Jim Mormon, who's a member of the Maltos Falcons, and the other meeting... He came over to me and said, oh, hey, you know, I was looking through one of my magazines because he's an electronic salesman, and they had this thing on lasers and beer. I, I got to make sure you, you read this because this is fascinating. So if you know how barley and malting works, you know that, you know, basically farmers out there growing barley, you know, they're trying to target growing barley that's of high enough quality that it's used for making beer. But that's only about 10% of the barley that's grown in the U.S. The other 90% gets turned basically into feed or into, you know, malt extract for baking or other things. So most of it going to feed. Now, the real problem is accurately figuring out, okay, what's the best of the crop in order to actually decide what gets used to make, you know, bread or what gets used to make beer or what goes for feed and whatnot. And there have been a lot of different techniques over the years, but what the Danish scientists here have written up, and you know, remember, the, the Danish are very good at beer science. After all, that's where the whole lager yeast thing originally came from, uh, which we'll get into in a little bit. But they are actually using a, uh, uh, I, I love this one, an NKT, uh, NKT Photonics Super Continuum Laser at wavelengths of uh, 2260 to 2003, uh, 2380 nanometers to actually figure out the amount of beta glucan in each of the barley kernels as they're going by. And from there, they can actually use that to then separate. Yeah. And send the good seeds off to, to be made into beer and send the, the lesser quality stuff off for bread and feed purposes. And the idea is just basically speeding it up and also improving the accuracy over current methodologies. So their whole idea is by doing this, they can actually sort it out so that you can get even better quality grain which, of course, as we know, since barley is such a base to our beers, could hopefully mean better beer. Better beer through technology? Is that what this is? It's exa exactly what it is. And what I thought was interesting was they said, because they're using you know the super continuum laser and they're doing light correlation, which is the whole thing, they are able to predict within a fraction of a second the beta-glucan content within, uh, I think they said, 3 to 16.8%. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, that that beats doing a chemical analysis like like they have done of like lots before. Well, and it's a win win because you not only get better beer, you get better bread also. Exactly. So, I don't know. What do you guys? Uh, what do you guys think of the idea of using lasers? Lasers for beer making. Are there better ways that we can use lasers? Does this need to be like a Rick and Morty project? Are there are there sharks involved also? <laughs> sharks with freaking laser beams. That's right. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like I, I like this, but I mean, this is not. I mean, this is not as far fetched as as it might sound at first, because I mean, if you've ever been anywhere near any sort of industrial line, any sort of processing type thing, yeah, you know, lasers and other sorts of light analysis are being used all the time for for sorting things. You know, they do this with uh, probably the most famous, most you know, ubiquitous one is they use you know light for doing uh, egg sorting. You know, and some of that's uh, the old fashioned way of doing it was candling. And now they're using it with automated machines to actually be able to do the same thing. So light, is there anything it can't do except for, you know, be our ultimate speed cop? It can't, uh, it can't make the room dark so that uh, you can sleep. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> 
But hey, just think, without light, there is no barley. Without barley, there is no beer. And without beer, what are we doing here? Ooh, boy. Uh, is this a test I didn't study? Don't worry, old stoner. <laughs> Let's just keep going. <laughs> right. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here while we head over to the brewery. And when we get there, we'll be talking about a new series of videos from Sierra Nevada. So please stick around. Are you a fan of chocolate, but not of the mess that comes from using cacao nibs? Chalaca is your answer. A favorite of Tim Matthews at Oscar Blues, it contains only cacao and water. Chalaca is aseptically packaged, so you don't have to worry about any bugs coming along uninvited. Using only sustainably sourced cacao, every bottle of Chalaca you buy helps regrow the rainforests of Ecuador and Peru. Ask for Chalaca wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. We're here in the brewery now, and we have all this shiny, shiny stuff going on around us. And we're going to talk about a series of behind-the-scenes videos that Sierra Nevada has put out that are pretty cool. Uh, I got to see a lot of behind-the-scenes when I was there for beer camp a few years ago. But this is for the rest of you who haven't seen all that stuff. Yeah, including me. So it turns out Sierra Nevada has a YouTube channel. You can go to YouTube dot com slash user slash Sierra Nevada brewing. And what's amazing to me is that their whole channel somehow only has 2,800 subscribers. You know, so you people need to get in there, but they have a ton of videos in here where they, they post a lot of different promotional things that they're doing. And they also post these to Facebook, which is part of the reason why I think they probably don't have as many YouTube subscribers, but they just this week launched a brand new series that they're calling tank tested. And it's going to be a series of behind-the-scenes videos. And the very first video, it's only two minutes long, the very first video is a visit to their barrel room you know, and see, you know, like all the different things that they're barrel aging and how they manage their barrels. You know, just they're nice little promotional things. Kind of think of it like, you know, the Discovery Channel's uh, Dogfish Head show, but only less weird. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, a lot of different, a lot of different videos that they have on there, including summaries of things like, you know, their uh, beer camp across America. And then they also have a brewer and beer geek uh, show where they actually have two people uh, going back and forth about the beers. It's a, it's a good, it's a good little channel uh, that to subscribe to. And I'm actually looking forward to seeing this series because Sierra Nevada, we talked about them earlier, uh, having their hazy IPA come out. Sierra Nevada has been one of the most, if not the most reliable and consistent and interesting craft brewers out there, particularly when you've considered the scale that they brew at now. They've never they've never seemed to have lost, you know, kind of that magic touch that they have. And there's a reason why Sierra Nevada Pale Ale is still such a great beer. Yeah, they have they have just a total dedication to quality all the way through that brewery and innovation too. Uh, when I was there they were producing like 90% of their power themselves through fuel cells and solar panels. And it's just, it, it's a cool place. They make great 
high quality beer. And uh, it, it's cool that we get to see behind the scenes here with these videos. If you've never gotten a chance to go to the brewery at Chico or the new one, I, I understand is also on the East Coast of Nashville is supposed to be fantastic. One of the things that you may not realize is just how many different beers they produce, because we don't you typically as craft beer consumers, we don't typically see a lot of the beers they produce. So if you but if you go to the pubs there, oh, my God, one of my local bars often gets special shipments from Sierra Nevada because they've had a very long relationship with them. That includes some of the things that, that you never really see, like Sierra Nevada had one of the best Roush beers I've ever had in my life that they produce occasionally. And when I can find it, I drink the hell out of it. But I can only ever find it on tap because it's normally only at the pub. So go watch their channel. Go watch uh, Tank Tested. Go see some of the stuff that they're doing there and dig into the rest of the content that they're doing because they've got they've got quite a few videos up there. So, you know, there's some good content there from, you know, really one of America's stalwarts. Check it out. It's, uh, it's really cool. And uh, I can't wait to see what they decide to uh, focus on for the next video. I guess we're going to head over to the lounge where we're going to continue talking about uh, the lager yeast question that I pulled up uh, in the last episode here. Uh, when I discovered that uh, maybe some lager yeasts are actually ale yeasts. And uh, we're going to talk to somebody who knows a whole heck of a lot more about it than we do and get some answers to some of the questions that I was asking. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Why Yeast would like to welcome everyone to the new year with our first release of Private Collection Strains for 2018, inspired by the Pacific Northwest's ever-changing forecast of wintry mix. Why Yeast's Burton IPA blend, West Coast IPA, and Rocky Mountain Lager strains will lend their profiles to an array of malt and bitterness balances, mid-to-low ester formation, and most important, drinkability, for styles as varied as the weather ahead. Why Yeast has over 30 years of experience producing premium liquid yeast, so you can brew with the same quality, purity, and reliability as the professionals do. These strains will be available January through March at your local homebrew shop. For more information, visit whyyeastlab.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, beer. We're sitting here in the lounge, and we're going to be listening to an interview that uh, Drew did the other day with Brian Height from Sui Generis Brewing, uh, which is a, a blog that he put together. Brian is a doctor of microbiology and a professor and had some insight into my question about are lager yeasts really ale yeasts? Huh? Yeah, it, it turns out he's kind of a smart dude. And we sat down. <laughs> yeah. And we sat down and we actually, we not only covered the whole story about what the heck is going on with yeast classification and just what the heck is an ale yeast and what the heck is a lager yeast and what classes do they belong to and all that sort of fun stuff. But we also dug into some really cool information that he's doing about wild yeast captures, other things that he's been doing on his blog for a while. And I think we yeah, we even covered the, the whole thing about that new yeast strain that's producing clean lactic acid. So and it turns out he has a close connection to that. So I thought overall this was a great talk, a lot of really good information, and I think you're just going to dig it. 
All right, let's hear Drew and Brian talking yeast. Okay, everybody, it's the lounge. You know what we do here. We talk to people. And if you remember in the last episode, well, we had that whole thing where Denny went, hey, wait a second. Why is some lager yeast marked as Saccharomyces cerevisiae? That's not lager. And we put it out there for questions and answers and hopefully to get a better sense of what the hell is going on than what we can do. And so one of the people that we heard from was uh, Mr. Brian uh, from, uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the blog name. Uh, uh, Brian, can you go ahead and introduce everybody to who you are and what your blog is? Uh, I'm Brian Height, and I blog at suegenerisbrewing.com. And of course, the joke about the forgotten blog is if you listened a couple of weeks back, we had the episode with Garrett and I talking about brewing in Chile, and he was talking about wild yeast captures, and we totally forgot Brian's blog's name. That's what I get for picking such a weird one. Well, okay, so let's start with that. What what does it mean for those who are Latin-impaired? So it's a, it's an old biology term that refers to a genus that only has one species in it. So Homo sapiens is an example of that us, where the genus Homo only has one species, which is sapiens us. So, and I have no idea why I picked that. It was just kind of what popped in my head that day. Well, and I was going to say, so this plays into your your background, so because you have a very technical background. Yeah, I uh, I was trained as a, a microbiologist and immunologist, and I'm now actually a, a professor in that field. Uh, although none of my research touches on any brewing organisms, but I still kind of can apply some of that to uh, what I do in my brewery. Ah, uh, so you you are actually a real scientist as opposed to those of us who are fake scientists. Well, I try. <laughs> well, okay. So then, how did uh, how did a science geek like yourself get into good beer? Uh, well, I actually started for all the wrong reasons. So I started brewing uh, right when I started university. Just the you know the cheap canned kits, uh, basically as a cheap way to get beer, and more by accident by design. I made a good beer one day. And that sort of started leading me down the path towards homebrewing. And this was before craft beer was really a thing in my part of Canada. So, you know, a lot of my early explorations into some of the sort of traditional European styles wasn't through the liquor store. It was actually because I could brew them and finally get my hands on them. Uh, and do you remember, like, what the what was the beer that you made that then suddenly make you go, oh, wait, hold on. So uh, I actually kind of got conned by the uh, brew store owner who I think knew what I was up to with all my beer kits, and he sort of got me to use some DME and some grains and some hops and basically just made a, a straight-up English pale ale. And, of course, it turned out really good. So that was uh, sort of the first step down the road to better beer. So, in other words, you, you went about this sort of backwards. I think most people say, oh, well, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, my dad used to drink German Pilsner. And when I grew up, it, like, suddenly the next thing you knew, I, I wanted to try that. And it's every, no, you went, you went the opposite way. You went, I made bad beer and then figured out how to make good beer. Yeah. All I wanted to do was drink and party. And then by accident, I started making good beer. So worked out in the end. Well, I think it helps the party, except for maybe from a yep. cost standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, and so now that you, now that you are obviously making good beer, what are your favorite things to make? I don't know that I necessarily have a favorite thing. Uh, I always seem to be be jumping around on styles. I usually have some sort of wild or sour ale going. Uh, that's sort of my my current passion. But you know, the classic English styles, a good old American IPA, all those kind of things. I like lagers. Uh, you name it. There's not too many beer styles I don't like. So I I generally make what I feel like. So, in other words, you do not just explore one one member of a genus. You are no. Nope. You, you, you have multiple loves. I do. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, I noticed that on your blog, you have a lot of different, a lot of different homebrew recipes that you're talking about, a lot of, a lot of different adventures across the way. So they seem to be fairly widespread. 
so now, it, what are some of your favorite things about brewing? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if it's different because you are so scientifically inclined. Uh, so, I mean, there's a part of that. You know, I like to experiment with some odd yeasts and things I, I pull out of my backyard and stuff like that. It's always interesting to see how that comes out. But I actually find a brew day a pretty relaxing way. Uh, usually I'm doing that on a Saturday or maybe late at night after my little guy's gone to bed. And, you know, it's just... Uh, sort of get things set up and I've been doing it a long time so you know it's pretty straightforward and I don't have to think too much and it's just a nice way to spend a day or an afternoon indeed and so now before we get into the meat of the question here I I know that you're you're drinking a beer right now what are you drinking so it's sort of a Russian imperial stout um, that was actually brewed to fill a barrel that my brew club has and so this was just a little bit of extra but the only yeast I had actually was a lager yeast so it's been fermented with W3470 rather than an English ale or, or something along those lines. Yeah. So in other words you kind of made a Baltic porter of sorts. Yeah, a real strong one. <laughs> well, that's cool. That, that, those are the best ones. They are. Alright, so now let's Let's talk about like you know why we why we reached out, or actually really why you reached out to us was on the last episode. Denny had discovered uh, via one of our listeners who uh, had noticed that the packages of Fermentus, you know, their thirty forty was it thirty forty seven D, you know, their their dried lager and a couple of the other dried lager strains were marked as Saccharomyces cerevisiae right now, and as we all know, that means ale yeast, and so Denny Denny got uh, befuddled. And confused as he as he is wont to do. Yeah, it, it happens to all of us. You should see the look on my face sometimes. And so he put it out there, say, "Hey, what's the story here? And is there some parallel to some of the things that people are seeing with dried lager yeast in terms of fermentation?" And you very kindly reached out to us and uh, gave us the lowdown. And so I was wondering if you'd you'd be able to kind of go into that for the audience, but and talk a little bit about, you know, so what does fermentus mean when they say Saccharomyces cerevisiae on those packets? You know, what's the story with lager yeast? Because it's very confusing now. Yeah, so that's exactly what I think I can do. Uh, so in fermentus defense, it's not really clear what we should call lager yeast because uh, it's not sort of a, a classic species. It's actually a hybrid between two different species, uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae, so classical ale yeast. And they've actually recently tracked it down. It looks like it was some sort of a Hefeweizen yeast. Uh, and then this uh, mysterious yeast that actually took over uh, 20 years for them to figure out what the heck it was. Uh, and so it, it ended up being something called Saccharomyces uber- uh Sorry, I'm going to mispronounce this, but Saccharomyces uberianus, I believe is how... Mm-hmm. You may say it. Um, you said it better than but, I could. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> uh, and, you know, when they found this yeast and sequenced it, they noticed they, this is the closest match we've ever seen to the other part, the mystery part of the logger genome. And uh, after a little bit more testing around 2014, they sort of put their stamp of approval on it and said, yes, this is the, the missing half to what makes up logger yeast. And uh, so when it comes to hybrids like that, it's, there isn't really hard and fast rules on what they should be called. Uh, sometimes they get called after either the part of it you know what it is or the part that's the predominant part. So, you know, calling Saccharomyces cerevisiae is not necessarily wrong. Uh, but in the case of lager yeast, I think it's looking like they've agreed it actually is a, its own species now. It's sort of been wandering down its own road long enough we can call it a species. And so most of the, the scientific literature actually calls it Saccharomyces pastorianus after Louis Pasteur. So, you know, I, I think they're not wrong in calling it a cerevisiae, but they're maybe not right either. 
<laughs> Wait, I thought science was supposed to give us hard and fast answers. What's happening? Yeah, not in the fungal world there isn't hard and fast answers. Well, and so uh, the that uh, that other part of the genome, is that the one that people had been talking about, like from Patagonia, from South America? Yeah, so the the first time they found it, it was in Patagonia, and that you know they actually thought it was a case, and maybe it came uh, came across with some of the the first plants and stuff that were coming over from the New World because logger yeast kind of appear roughly the same time in history, but they've since found better matches in Tibet, so they actually think it maybe came uh, along the Silk Road rather than coming across from South America. Oh, okay, so and, and then probably. If it came in from South America, maybe over the land bridge, or, or are they thinking that was European? No, no, European. So lager yeast appears five, six hundred years ago, so about the same time when you were starting to see trade with uh, trade or transport, whatever you want to call it, with the New World. All right. So and and so all that stuff about oh hey you know lager yeast is from South America is just really the comes about from that was the first time they discovered this piece. Yeah, and they've since found it in other places. It seems if you're sort of cold and dry and windy, you might have it kicking around. Before I forget, Pastoranus, the, the new name for lager yeast. Is uh, that- it's actually the oldest name for lager oh. yeast, but it's the name people seem to have settled on. Okay, well, okay, yeah, so the one that they're, that, that they're using it, because I also know there's Carl Virginius. Yeah, so scientifically, that one's unofficial, um, because basically Hansen came up with that name about three, four decades after... The first guy who discovered lager yeast uh, named it Pastanorius. So usually when that happens, whoever named it first is the winner. Um, but, uh, well, maybe we can talk about it later, but actually it gets even more complicated than that. <laughs> well, and then, uh, so yeah, before we get too complicated, so we've got Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and of course there are a lot of different Saccharomyces out there. You know, it's just that we deal with cerevisia for beer and bread making. So that's the one that we know and love. Yep. So we've got Cervasia hanging out there. At some point in time, you know, we get uh, Eubianus, or however you want to say it, uh, comes around. And then what we get, like, uh, sexual reproduction or uh, some sort of gene swap happening there then? So, yeah, that part's a little bit of a mystery. They probably ended up in a fermenter somewhere together. And when yeast gets stressed, strange things can happen. So they may have accidentally sort of crossbred. It may even have been simpler than that, and you just had two sort of stressed and damaged cells that kind of got pushed together and merged uh, into a single cell. Um, the thing when you look at some strains of lager yeast is they actually have a, a full complement of both the Saccharomyces cerevisiae and the Ubianus um, chromosomes, which sort of suggests it wasn't sexual reproduction because then you only get one copy of each. It kind of suggests you maybe fuse two cells together. Have I ever said that fungus are weird? Yeah, fungus are weird. <laughs> really weird. <laughs> so, uh, so we get uh, then basically we get these cells that we now think of as lager yeast, and you know they they consist of some ratio of cervasia uh, genome and some uh, ratio of the Eubianus ratio or uh, genome, and then what we're what we were saying earlier is that depending upon that ratio, I mean that ratio can vary from strain to strain. It can. So there's sort of two major families, if you will, of, of lager yeast. So there's what they call type 1 or the SAS family. And so this is one where it looks like at first you had, you know, a full set of cerevisiae and a, so, a full set of ubianus, sorry, I keep mispronouncing that, uh, chromosomes in you the same both, yeast. Uh, but then it looks like they've lost about half of the, the cerevisiae genome. So it's more of the ubianus than the, than the cerevisiae. 
Uh, and then there's the Type 2 or the, the Frohenberg group. And these ones are the ones that have basically a pretty much complete set of each. Um, so they, they do vary depending on which group you're talking about. Interesting. So do we think that that has some impact on the fermentation characteristics, like in terms of temperature sensitivity? I mean, would that be a possibility? So it doesn't really look like it. Um, it's, it's thought that a lot of the temperature sort of tolerance, the low temperature tolerance is really from that Eubianus species. Mm-hmm. And so since both of them have two copies of that, of that yeast chromosomes, they seem to have sort of inherited, uh, that, tolerance to cold equally um but they are different so you know the the type 2 sort of the classic strain in there is w3470 mm-hmm. whereas the type 1 is actually the carlsberg yeast so they are lager yeast with different characteristics different flavor profiles um so it you know there's there's definitely from a, from a, a beer brewing perspective differences between the two mm-hmm. well and then i know that uh I know, and all of this stuff I think what this starts getting confused around, like how uh, when we started to bring DNA testing in, right? Because I mean, w- w- when we first started classifying lager yeast, I mean, it was just on pure characteristics of the of the yeast performance, right? Things that we exactly. could observe. And so I'm trying to remember the one I always learned was whether or not it could ferment uh, raffinose. Yeah, and that's all lager yeast, right? That's the right. thing that really sets them apart from ale yeasts, right? And so. Ra- uh, raffinose listeners is a one of the longer chain uh, sugars, and so ale yeast can't handle it. It, it, it can't break it down and, and convert it into ethanol and CO two. Lager yeast can. So that I mean that always used to be the test. You know, basically put it, uh, put the yeast strain in the presence of raffinose. If it can ferment it, congratulations, you're a lager. If not, you're an ale. Right? Yeah, and that, and that still works today, except the genetic testing messes everything else up. And I know what there. There's a paper that a lot of people were talking about online. Um, was it uh, Gallon or something like that? Uh, from I think uh, the past couple of years ago, like 2016, where they took yeast strains, a lot some that supplied by Chris White and White Labs, and started doing sequencing and went, "Yep, Cervasia lager, you know, or uh, Pastoranus and uh, Cervasia." What? And it was like, "Oh wait, those don't line up to what we think they're supposed to be." Yeah, it's it's sort of a a weird world when you start tracking down where some of these yeasts seem to come from. I mean, the one that always surprised me is actually wine stiffen yeast. Sorry, mm-hmm. I think I'm mispronouncing that. But anyways, it's it's actually much closer to uh, English ale strains than it is to Kolsch and Alt strains. And you would you would expect, given where they are in the world, they'd actually be the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. It just shows that yeast are, well, they're dirty hobos. They like to travel everywhere. Yeah, or brewers or thieves, one or the other. Take oh. what works and from whoever has it. Brewing history is rife of uh, espionage and uh, pulling yeast around. I, I still think my favorite one of those is the McEwen strain somehow ending up becoming the Duval strain over time. That, yeah. that, that's the one that's always puzzled me. But when you when you got what people want, they find ways to get it. You were saying before that all this gets really confusing. Can, uh, can you can you dive into what you mean by that? Just because I think people aren't confused enough already. Yeah. So sort of the the big debate now that we know where the non-serve ECA half of the genome came from is exactly how we ended up with two different major groups of lager yeast. And so the the one sort of group of people are saying, well, they're probably two completely separate um, events. And the, the reason why they're saying that is when you look at the, the Cerevisiae portion of the genomes between the, the SAS versus the Fronberg uh, families, 
is they're way too different to account for the kind of mutations you would expect to see over five, six hundred years. There's about ten times more mutations there than there should be, assuming that they came, you know, assuming that there was a single event that led to the uh, the formation of logger yeast. And so those people are are trying to argue, okay, well, it happened twice mm-hmm. in two different places. But then there's other groups who are saying, well, that makes no sense because, um, I mean, again, to make things more confusing, I mean, they don't just have full sets of chromosomes from both species, but some of those chromosomes have sort of swapped parts. So you'll have pieces of Cerevisiae next to Berianus all on the same chromosome. And when you look at where those pieces have been swapped, they're the same between the type 1s and the type 2s. And so, I mean, what's the chances if you had two completely different um, interbreeding or whatever you want to call it, events of them then swapping the same pieces of chromosomes at the exact same place. And so there's been a lot of hand-waving sort of trying to explain how you can have more change in the Cerevisiae side than you could account for with just the time that used to have been around versus having this bizarre th- situation where you, you know, you've rearranged chromosomes in the exact same way. And so the third group is saying, well, what's probably happened is there was the, the, an original fusion event that created, I think they think it was the type uh, 1, so the one that only has a, a, a bit of the, the uh, Cerevisiae genome in it. And then that one fused again with another Cerevisiae, which gave you the type 2s that have a full Cerevisiae genome. And because it bred with a, sep- a second Cerevisiae, that's where all those unexpected mutations come from. So, I mean... It, it, <laughs> does that it, even make sense? <laughs> yeah, it, it does. It's basically, it's basically, were these mutations, or were these events independent, or were they in a chain? Exactly. And, you know, I don't think today anyone's really willing to put a stamp on one and say this is the one that happened. I think it's still sort of a an area of open debate. I mean, just last year alone, I found papers that argued all three positions. <laughs> well, and so it, it makes me wonder then, given, uh, given that I know that yeast are used a lot for uh, genetic studies and, and sort of, you know, how things evolve over time, because they, they do tend to evolve relatively quickly, I'm actually kind of surprised that we wouldn't have seen more of these types of events well in some ways we have so if you look at all the other species of saccharomyces a lot of them are actually species that formed um or at least in their in the past have interbred with other saccharomyces species and so actually one one of the things that led to it taking so long to find this uberianus part of the the uh, uh, logger genome is there was um, Berianus and Uvarium species that were pretty close, but not quite right to be the, the ancestor logger. And it turns out both of those are actually hybrids themselves. So this, this sort of interspecies breeding is pretty common among um, yeasts. And that then makes it really hard to kind of decode what's going on when you, when you start investigating them. And, and sorry, that, I forgot your question, so I probably went off track. No, that's, that's good, because uh, I was asking whether or not this was kind of a common thing. Uh, so, yeah, so it is pretty common. I guess then the upshot is, you know, this sort of thing happens. It's just that the ale lager piece was such a radical shift that they kind of separated out into, like, very distinctive lines. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, because humans were very interested in in what they were doing and and really liked the logger outcome, so I think that kind of probably pushed a lot of that. Yeah, they turned out to be useful. Yeah, exactly, they turned out to be useful. 
because I'm sure some yeast hybrids come out and they're probably not so useful. I know in the news recently, there were people talking about uh, scientists pushing a new yeast strain that could do lactic acid production. You know, like, hey, let's get you know a clean fermenter that produces acid. Yeah, I'm, I'm wondering. That's Lachancia. And is that the same? Is that probably the same sort of process? Or no, that's something completely different. So that's actually a a completely different genius. Uh, genius. That's a completely different genus of yeast. Okay. I actually know the guy that discovered the genus. Um, I work in the in the same university as he does, and uh, it's just it's a strange genus of yeast. So all of this, there's four or five different species in the genus, and mm-hmm. every single one of them make lactic acid along with alcohol when they ferment. So they basically just, the, the way they're programmed biochemically, they when they ferment, they, they produce alcohol and lactic acid at the same time. So in other words, we're talking, these are just whole new organisms that, that they're starting to classify and, and deal with and not something that was sort of created by, you know, Frankenstein's mathematician. They're, they're completely natural, wild uh, yeast. The, actually, the biggest problem they run into in trying to use them in the brewery is they're really not fond of warm temperatures. So, you know, a lot of them much uh, warmer than 18 Celsius, which I think is about 70 Fahrenheit, uh, they'll just peter out and die. So, it, mm. you know, makes it difficult to ferment with them because sort of by extension, their, their natural pace of fermentation is kind of slow. Right. So not, not the best thing in the brewery, but people are trying to, to make them work. And that's funny because you think about the advice when you use lactobacillus is, you know, get it nice and hot, you know, like, yeah, keep, crank keep, it up. You know, get that thing up around 100 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, it's got to be hot in order to, in order to run. <laughs> yeah, and the, the Lanchancy is the opposite, so it likes it cold. Denny, I think, well, I know he wasn't raised Catholic, but I think he still has a latent bit of Catholicism somewhere in his soul. And this is his uh, self-flagellation question. Was Were we dumb for not knowing this? Is this common no, knowledge? No, not at all. I mean, keep in mind, you know, up until 2014, we didn't even really know what half of the lager yeast genome came from. And, you know, scientists who actually study yeast for a living, so not me, but other scientists, are still figure, trying to figure it out. I think it's perfectly fine if homebrewers are a little confused. I mean, I know when I was reading through all of this stuff, I was having trouble putting all the pieces together myself. There you go. And you have a degree and all that sort of fun stuff. So, yeah. I, in theory, I should know what I'm I'm looking at here, and I still have kind of scratching my head. So, then I guess here, me being the the sort of nuevo file, you know, the guy addicted to the new stuff, the magpie in the brewery. Uh, what what sort of possible impacts from this sort of knowledge can you see happening? You know, going out to brew. So, yeah. So already, you know, now that they they know where the Suberianus is, uh, there are groups who are or essentially in the lab, forcing it to breed with Cerevisia to try and create new lager strains. And, you know, you can imagine, you could start taking some of the Cerevisia strains that, you know, have characteristics very different from lager yeast, like maybe a, a very fruity ester profile or something like that, and then crossing them with with the Uberianus to get, you know, a completely new lager strain with something uh, with a flavor profile very different than what you would expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one one report I found... Um, actually claimed to have found an even cleaner or claimed to have made an even cleaner lager yeast just by breeding, you know, some strain of Saccharomyces together with a, with a Uberiana. So for 
potentially super, super clean loggers. Well, and of course, uh, I have to guess that the end goal is somebody is going to try and figure out how can we make a hot lager strain? Well, I think that already exists. I mean, my my experience, at least with warm lager fermentations, have been pretty successful. But I could see them, you know, maybe in the commercial environment, trying to find something that works better for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, come on, you can't tell me that, like, Molson or Anheuser-Busch or, you know, any of these guys wouldn't kill to have a strain that works commercially at, you know, say, 70 that would produce a lager-like flavor that they could sell commercially as a lager. And, oh, I, I'm sure they'd love to get their hands on that. They'd probably cut a couple weeks off their production runs. Yeah, exactly. And, and man, time is money. Time is money in the brewing world. Yep. Okay, so that's our that's our lager uh, discussion. I think we, we now fully understand that the world of yeast, and particularly what's a lager yeast, what's not a lager yeast, there's no rhyme or reason. It's just confused. So sit back and enjoy the ride, and hopefully one of these days we'll have the answers. Now... Obviously, your blog covers a lot more than this, and you touched on one of the things earlier, and it was the thing that Garrett was touching on in the talk that when we both just basically vapored on on the blog name, and that's wild yeast capturing at home. Yeah. So, can you can you talk a little bit about that? Talk about some of your experiments and you know what got you doing that? You know, I can't even remember the first time I did uh, a wild beer. It was so long ago. And uh, I was, I've always been interested in sort of, you know, what local sort of bacteria and yeast can kind of give to a beer. And so I've been making wild beers on and off, you know, throughout the, the 21 years I've been brewing. And I've always sort of amazed at just, you know, how different they can be, you know, from the same place in the same backyard one month to the next. And I just find it very interesting and the other thing I'm, I'm kind of motivated by is I have this dream that one day from one of my wild ferments, I'll be able to pull out a, a yeast strain that's actually good on its own and sort of have my own personal house strain that I, you know, pulled out of the backyard or from wherever. <laughs> the, the, the magic yeast strain. I like it. So yeah. now how do you go about doing uh, your wild yeast captures or how have you had the most success? Uh, well, I've done it in a variety of ways and they all seem to work most of the time, but all seem to fail once in a while. Um, so most of the time, I mean, I tend to be kind of lazy when it comes to brewing. So I quite often just do sort of the cool ship thing. So I, I brew out in the yard on a propane burner. I'll uh, throw a barbecue grill over the top of the pot and put a brick on it to keep the raccoons out. And then I'll just, you know, go inside for the night and in the morning uh, transfer it to a fermenter and see what happens. Um, but I've also done cases where I've um, put jars of wort out or where I've put fruit into jars of wort or flowers to see what's, you know, to gather yeast that way. Um, those are, are probably the most typical ways that I would go about sort of gathering wild yeast, whether it's from the air or from fruit or something like that. Anything special about the wort that you're using for capture, like specific gravity or anything that works best, do you think? Or is it just, yeah, just give some food? If I'm putting stuff out to deliberately try and capture wild yeast or if I'm sampling fruit or something like that, I'll usually pre-acidify the wort to around 4.4, 4.5 uh, just to, to knock back some of the, the potential pathogens that can grow. Uh, other than that, I don't usually do too much special uh, to try and make it maybe a little more selective. I'm usually shooting for between a, a 1.030 and 0.040 wart so you know a lower gravity wart mm -hmm. um i usually don't hop because i like 
sour beer and lactobacilli, and most of the ones you capture in the wild tend to be kind of hop tolerant. And, uh, you know, but the only exception to that is recently I've actually started trying to capture wild yeast from yeast litter. And so when I do that, I've been adding about 5% ethanol. So basically I, I take vodka and I add it to the, to the, um, wart until I got about a 5% alcohol in there just because, you know, there's a lot of nasty things also growing in leaf litter and that little bit of alcohol plus pre-acidifying to, you know, 4-4. So we'll pretty much kill it off the second the leaf hits the wart. Okay. So yeah, I got confused when you first said that. So you're literally taking leaves from, I'm guessing like various fruit trees or various other trees. Well, actually off the ground. Oh, just off the ground. So you're, yeah. Right off the ground. Yeah. So there were some recent studies. So in, in the things yeast being we- weird, people actually have no idea where Saccharomyces cerevisiae lives in the wild. Um, pe- because people use it for so many things, baking and brewing and all these things. Mm-hmm. The, the human stuff is spread everywhere. Right. And so I think it was just last year or maybe the year before, a group actually fi- figured out that in the wild, it, it grows on the leaves of things, on um, the fallen leaves of trees like oaks and maples. And so I've been trying to sort of gather from there to see if I can't find some of that stuff locally. You know, sometimes I just wonder when people come up with these experiments and these explorations, if they're just really, really bored, because I don't know how that would ever occur to anybody. <laughs> I, I don't know either, but, uh, you know, it's funny because over the years, I mean, people thought they grew on fruit, but when you look on, on fruit, it's actually really hard to find them. And then people thought it was bark, but it's also kind of hard to find them on bark. But uh, for some reason in leaf litter, they seem to be just chock full of it, so... Well, as, as long as you get the clean leaves, but I suppose that's why the yeah. ethanol's there. Well, part in part, but you got to watch where the dog's been. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so let me ask then the other the other thing that I've noticed when I've done some wild capture type stuff is I don't know if this is just you know me having observational bias on my own, you know, because I know where everything's from, but I've always seemed to had the best success if I'm trying to do a wild use capture. Now, of course, this is going to sound funny with the fruit part, but if I'm in a more agricultural area where there's more stuff growing, and you know, and I think literally the best success I've ever had was leaving jars out in near citrus orchards or apple orchards and getting the yeast out of there. And so I don't know if there's actually any correlation there or if I just got lucky, and particularly if it's coming off of oak trees and the leaves. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had good luck in the city. I've had good luck in the country, and I've had bad luck in both places, too. Um, you know, I think the one thing that happens in the city that might be an advantage is you get a lot more air being stirred up by traffic and things like that. And so you may get, you know, yeast being spread a little farther. But, um, you know, I think the flip side is out in the country, obviously, there's a lot more things growing and, uh, you know, more places where yeast may kind of find a home. So I don't really know. I don't think anyone's really looked at that. Yeah, I'd be scared to actually try and break down the contents of any of the starters I would try to make here near my house because I'm not that far away from a eight-lane highway. So I imagine my my starters would come with a lot of uh, tire dust. Yeah, maybe a little. Who knows? That's all right. (laughs) You're probably breathing that too. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that. Now I'm going to sleep well. (laughs) All right, so that's the wild yeast capture. Was there one particular... Uh, beer that you had that you, that you made this way that was magical that you've tried to get back to and maybe not gotten to or have you actually successfully recreated it uh, i don't think i've ever managed to make the same wild beer more than once um i've certainly had some that were really good 
you know, usually they, they work well if you blend them with something or, or fruit them to, to add a little bit more to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a Solera, um, which basically has every sour beer and every wild yeast and every wild ferment that I've ever had that I liked in it. So some of them are still alive and, and chugging presumably years after I got them. Uh, but I've never really tried to recreate them. I always want the the new one, not the old one. <laughs> well, I, I think if you're making intentional wild ales from uncontrolled sources, you're that's what you're going to get. So I mean, it's better to have that attitude. I think. Yeah, I think if you're going to try and sort of get the same thing back again, you're probably going to find yourself a little disappointed. Um, you know, I've I've even noticed, you know putting the pot in the exact same place in the yard just a couple weeks later you can end up with a completely different beer even though you know the recipe and everything else remains the same so it's uh you know i i I think if you're looking for consistency you probably don't want to be looking for wild yeast i think that's the reason why we all switch to monocultures yeah probably (laughs) consistency is good yep yeah i I like to be be able to have my lager taste like a lager and not uh something that came off a noak leaf all right. So wild yeast capture, that's that's definitely one of the things that uh, people have talked about. And like I said, we talked about wild yeast capture with Garrett uh, a couple of weeks back. Anything else that you want to tell the audience about? You know, like, you know, anything else that you're having fun playing with? I know that you had some stuff about PCR uh, up on your on your website. <laughs> Getting off to, awfully nerdy there. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that that's pretty in depth topic, but uh, you know, I do have an interest in bringing sort of some of the more advanced stuff I, I do in the lab to some of the brewing things I do. So, you know, when I do find a good strain of yeast or lactobacillus, I usually try and figure out what it is, and I can take advantage of genetic te- techniques for that. And if you're interested in doing that, I've posted some of those methods on my blog. But it's you know not the thing you're going to do in your basement. You do need a, a proper sort of lab for that. Uh, and then kind of the, the thing I'm working on right now is actually trying to see if I can't come with a, up with a relatively inexpensive way to detect this uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae variant diastaticus, which has caused some, some issues in the commercial brewing world, at least uh, recently. Yep. And so this is a, a pretty nasty Saccharomyces, which just sort of you know hides in places, but it can eat all the dextrans that the other Saccharomyces leave behind. So you know you put a few, bo- few cells of that into a bottle of beer, and three months later, the bottle explodes and the beer you know, tastes like uh, smoke and leather or something like that. So, you know, there's interest, at least commercially, for for a way to detect this that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. Yeah, we we talked about diastaticus the the other week in, in light of the left-hand lawsuit that's going on right now. And, yeah. And, it, yeah, it, that has got to be just an ugly, ugly thing for people to have to worry about if you're running a commercial business. I think our conclusion was, you know, for the most part, as homebrewers, unless you're really trying to hold on to the beer for the longest time, the diastaticus is probably not going to be a huge impactor for us, but it's still, I think that was another one of those things that made everybody go suddenly like, huh, there's different sort of yeast behavior. What? Yeah. And I, I would agree. I think for your average homebrewed beer, you're probably all right. Uh, I sometimes brew sort of long-aged vintage beers, and so now I'm worrying about it, but I've never had a problem with it, so maybe I'm worrying about nothing. Well, I think I think it definitely proves out some things I've noticed in the past, like with some of my my French Saison beers, if I hold on to them for too long. You know, since that French Saison strain is supposed to be, you know, at least some people claim it's a diastaticus variant. Yeah, and I've seen some other claims about some of the other uh, variants that are out there that are commercially available, and everybody's using them without knowing it. 
I, I mean, that's a again be pretty complicated area too by the looks of it. I mean, I'm not as as familiar with it as I'd like to be, but there's been a few reports where there's um, some strains that seem to have the gene for it, but for reasons no one really understands, they don't seem to actually turn the gene on. So even though you know, actually in a PCR test like what I'm trying to develop, they'd be considered positive mm-hmm. in terms of practical sense. They'd actually be negative. So it's, you know, I think it's going to be a while before we really have a, a good feel for exactly how that yeast works and where it is a problem and what strains truly are diastatic and which ones just happen to have the gene but don't actually use it. So eventually, I think what we'll get down to uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae of our diastaticus active and non-active or something like that, right? Yeah, hopefully it'll just be when you, you buy your, your uh, tube of yeast, it'll just be a, a line on the info sheet and it just says plus or minus and that's all you need to know. Yep. But right now is a bit of a black box, I think. All right. Well, so before we before we take our leave and get on on to the rest of the business of the podcast, anything else that you want to share? Uh, no, I think that's it. Right. Thanks for having me on. All right, and uh, remind people again where they can go read your writings and explore, you know, PCR nerdery and wild yeast nerdery and other beer nerdery. Uh, it's uh, sui generis uh, brewing dot com, and I'd spell that out, but for the life of me, I can't remember how. <laughs> Don't worry, we will include it in the show notes so that you don't have to worry yeah. about the spelling. If 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 you try if you try to Google it, it'll probably find find it for you. Yeah, as long as you get somewhere near the spelling and say brewing and blog, Google yeah. Google will, <laughs> Google will get you there. All right. Well, hey, yeah, I should. Well, hey, Brian, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time here uh, to talk to us and and help us sort out the whole logger mess. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I hope I achieved that and just didn't confuse people anymore, and thanks for having me on. Oh, well, I think I think the thing is that this is the appropriate level of confusion, because now everybody can go, <laughs> I don't know, man. And everybody's right. Nobody knows. Sounds fair. <laughs> All right. Thank you, man. Well, so how'd I do? Did you enjoy yourself? Did you learn something, Denny? Are, oh, you, are you settled now on the idea of lager yeast versus ale yeast? Uh, well, you know, I am. I have it clearer in my mind that all lager yeast are actually part ale yeast to to a greater or lesser extent. I think that uh, I actually managed to kind of grok about 80% of what Brian was talking about. That was really a truly fascinating interview. What I always liked was that whenever you kind of dig into some of the stuff about science and you start to realize that, you know, we all like to think that science gives you nice, clean answers. No, <laughs> it just really raises more questions. Yeah, right. Well, and I think that uh, that's a pretty obvious thing. Uh, the more you know, the more you need to know, huh? Indeed. Well, I don't know about you, but I think I think it's time to walk away from the East and well, maybe go do some other fun stuff. Yes, let's do that. We'll be right back after these words from our sponsors. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their 8th generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com.
Hey, we are back. Aren't you thrilled? That was a darn interesting interview, and I feel smarter now than I was before. But we're going to see if we're smart enough to maybe give people some decent answers to their questions. Uh, this first one comes from Charlie Faraday from Boise, and he says, My question is about two malts a friend gave me, one labeled Abbey Malt and the other Belgian Biscuit Malt. I'm not sure what maltsters produce them since that is absent from the packaging. I believe both are from more beer, and I'm not sure what beer styles other than Belgians I can use them in, and what characteristics they'll contribute to my beer. Can the Belgian biscuit malt be a substitute for regular biscuit or victory malt? Uh, that last question first. Yeah, um, there are a number of maltsters who make biscuit malt, uh, Belgian biscuit malt, Dingemans is one of them, uh, several other ones, and it is pretty much equivalent to uh, American biscuit or victory malt, at least in usage. The Abbey malt is a Wireman product. It's in the 16 to 19 level bond range, and Wireman says that even at that dark, it can be used as a base malt for your beer. It has a nutty, raisiny kind of flavor to it, they say. Sounds kind of interesting to me, especially if you're going to be making uh, something like a, a double or a Belgian dark strong. So hopefully, Charlie, that'll give you an idea of what to do with those malts. Yeah, and I will, as always, throw in my caution about all the biscuit malts and all the other toasted malts. They sound really fun to use in mass quantities. Don't. <laughs> yeah, right. Restraint keep an is even the hand, key. Keep, yeah, keep an even hand with those because, boy, they can really quickly overwhelm your beer. Um, looking at you, Fat Tire. <laughs> well, and especially if you're going to be using them in conjunction with something like the Abbey malt, let's say a darker base malt, you need to really use a judicious uh, touch on them. So you get the next one, buddy. Yeah, all right. So our next one comes from Chris Brand from Minneapolis. And he says, most half rooms in my area and in my travels still display the IBUs of their brewers. Do you have a sense for whether those are calculated or measured? Given your work on disparities between calculated and measured IBUs, I thought you'd be the right people to ask. Well, Chris, I'm going to say that if you're in any sort of small brewery, and by small, I mean, you know, like, hey, one location, a handful of people, and really almost any brewery anyway, unless you get big, those are going to be calculated IBUs. You know, the problem being that, you know, actually doing the IBU testing, you know, requires some handy dandy equipment and actually requires people who know what they're doing in terms of actually doing scientific assays. And that's pretty much generally out of the realm of most breweries, even if most breweries will now have like a little lab to do like cell counting and that sort of thing. So, yeah. Almost all the time, I think, unless you're looking at, like, say, a Sierra Nevada or even a smaller brewery, like, say, the brewery, you know, something on that scale, those numbers are going to be calculated. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means exactly what you thought we said before. The IBU is a lie. And that really means that I don't think that you can count that one brewery's 67 IBUs is going to be equal to another brewery's 67 IBUs because, again, different equipment, different utilization, different gravities, different everything else. So, again, use those as relative markers, right? Consider that, you know, brewery A's 67 IBUs is not necessarily going to be the same as brewery B's 67 IBUs. And brewery A's, you know, 70 IBUs may be less hoppy than brewery B's 60. So, just learn internal brand consistency just like you do with your own breweries, at least my argument. And surprise, surprise, I'm going to disagree, at least to a degree. Sure. Um, 
I think, number one, there's no way of knowing unless you actually ask the brewery. Uh, you can make assumptions, but they're just that, assumptions. Also, I'm going to tell you that even our smallest breweries here in Eugene get their beers lab tested so they know what the final IBUs are. Our good buddy Dana drives her van around and picks up samples from breweries uh, one day a week, does the analysis for them. And if that's happening in Eugene, I would think that it has to be happening other places also. It's not happening in L.A. Well, that's L.A. What can I say? <laughs> There's a reason I don't live in L.A., and that's one of them. Like I said, I think that you can't make an assumption. I think it could be either way. So, good luck. I, I, I'm still going to stand by my assertion that most most of the time you're going to see calculations. Okay, well, you can... There you go. I, I, right. I think that that's as likely as anything else. Okay, so uh, next question. All righty. This, uh, this is a rather long letter. It comes in from Mark Winters, who says, Hello, Denny and Drew. I have a question about lactobacillus. I've decided that 2018 will be the year of obscure German beers. Goes Lichtenhainer, Munsteralt, Adam Beer, German Porter, and Gretzer, to name a few. One thing many of these beers have in common is the use of some type of lactobacillus for souring. Now, I know with beers like the Goes, a kettle souring technique or the use of some acidulated malt could add the desired acidity I'm looking for. My question is more in regards to the Adam beer and German porter. My research indicates that both styles use lactobacillus in secondary for aging. My question is, how worried do I need to be about getting lacto all over my brew gear? I plan to bottle these beers as they'll need some aging to develop and become drinkable. I'm guessing that it's no problem to have the lacto in glass bottles, as I can soak them in OxyClean or sterilize them in other methods. Should I worry about any plastic tubing, such as the vinyl tubing I use for keg-to-keg -keg transfers and the tubing I use with my beer gun to fill bottles? Would soaking, flushing the gear with OxyClean right after use work, followed by a rinse with a sanitizer? This is my first step into sour brewing, and I'd rather not infect my entire system with lacto. The internet is full of contradictory information on just how careful you need to be with lacto, so I'm hoping you guys can give me some more credible advice. Thanks a lot, and keep up the wonderful work. P.S. The base of my Adam beer will be built off of the Maltose Falcon recipe. Whoa, Ooh. yeah, there you go, man. Okay, I have limited experience with lactobacillus, so I'm just going to tell you what I know and what I do. That is, when I use lacto, everything that I've used with it gets a soak in a strong bleach solution before going on and being thoroughly cleaned and then sanitized with iodophore. Uh, rather than star sand. Uh, you know, I don't know how necessary all that stuff is, but uh, I figure that it's not that difficult or expensive to do, and it's worth a try. And I've never had any cross-contamination after using that method, so I'm guessing it works. Uh, you, you have anything more definite than that? Uh, I'm just more paranoid. I use completely different tubing. I mean, I don't worry about anything metal. I don't worry about anything glass. But plastic or vinyl or anything like that, yeah. I mean, I I do something different. So, like in the case of the beer gun, for instance, the primary thing I would worry about is having, you know, a whole separate different piece of beverage line. You know, that nice 10-foot long piece that it does. 
and I would use that. I keep separate uh, keg hoses for my kegs with that sort of stuff. Turns out, I mean, it's really not that much more expensive to do, and I just prefer the little extra you know, safety valve that I get. Yeah. And it certainly isn't going to hurt. You know, when I've used Lacto, I haven't had the extra equipment around to dedicate to it. So I've just done what I can do. And so far it's been working for me. I would say if you're going to be doing Lacto a lot, it probably isn't a bad idea to get a separate set of uh, plastic equipment for the Lacto just to be safe. Yeah. And I was going to say with the number of, uh, Obscure German beers. And by the way, I love the fact that this is the year of obscure German beers. Yeah. I thought. Uh, but with the, no- with the number of these experiments I was talking about, I, w- I would just go and bite the bullet and go, you know, spend, say, the $30 to get the additional tubing. Yeah. If you're going to be doing it all year long, it's definitely going to be worth it. Yeah. And then uh, also make sure, don't be a dummy like I have been in the past. Uh, make sure you label the lines that are sour beer only uh, pretty well. Yeah, That's a good idea. That's a really good idea because otherwise having separate equipment won't matter, huh? Yeah, and then also make sure that with your kegs that you also get pick up the extra gaskets. You know, that's like another uh, two, three bucks per keg. If you're going to have any lactobacillus-infected beer inside your kegs, either dedicate them to uh, lacto beers or sour beers, or uh, after you've cleaned them, replace the uh, seals all the gaskets, and then uh, sanitize. And by the way, I will also say that Adam beer recipe that you're going to start with, uh, the one off the Maltos Falcons webpage, that's from my good buddy, John Aitchison. Adam beer is his jam, just like Saison is mine. So he's had a lot of opportunities to refine that and really sort of dial that thing in. So it is definitely a worthwhile recipe. Cool. All righty, you get the last one here. Okay, so our last question comes from Billy C, who says, Hey guys, have you heard of anyone doing anything like purposely mashing in a few degrees below beta rest to have strike water be roughly around 152 to avoid denaturing enzymes or bump the yield versus the 160 degrees Fahrenheit I do for a standard single infusion? Yes, I know 160 is hardly borderline of enzyme destruction, but my typical mash and strike temperature is around 167. I'm trying to recreate a Hellas Munich, that, which I had back in 2013. My attempt to this version is to really dry it out to the lower end of the style to simulate possible heat loss back when I mashed the beer originally. Ah, trying to recreate, trying to chase the dragon. That's right, man. I made a mistake. I would need to do it again on purpose. So I was planning on playing around a little while I was at it by also mashing in with strike water at around 152 degrees Fahrenheit, which should give me roughly a 140 mash. Then I'd hit the fire for the burner and recirculate to heat it to my goal for this Hellas version of 147. Any pros or cons to what I'm planning on doing this weekend? I know I won't hear back for a while, so I'm looking forward to hearing about my little test as this beer is chilling in the fermenter. Uh, thanks for the show, uh, guys. One of my favorite podcasts to listen to. I'm even considering brewing a Saison, possibly doing a split batch of Saison and a Sour. A podcast inspired me. Both beers I have no experience with. Maybe I'll do two three-gallon batches to be safe. Also, any recipe suggestions that would go both ways for my Saison brew would be great. All right. For, uh, second question first. Almost any Saison recipe that you can choose will do pretty well as a sour as well. Uh, they they ser- share very similar structures. I would probably just avoid anything with a lot of uh, specialty malts. So, it, again, on the biscuit angle or any of the toasted malts, choose a simple Saison recipe to go sour with. All right. On the mash question. Yes, I have heard of people doing that sort of thing. But really, the most common thing that you'll see is the old European schedules where they almost kind of do a continuous mash ramp. 
So you'll see beers that start at like 122 and then ramp up to say 135 and then they ramp up to a low 140 and then they ramp up to a low 148, 150 and then finally a high rest up in the 160s. And a lot of times you'll see people just pull that off as just sort of a continuous ramp because it's almost like, okay, go to that temperature, hold it there for 10 minutes, then keep going. And everybody's like, "Mm, whatever. The mash volumes take a while to rise. Now, do I think that's going to actually have an impact for what you want to do? No. (laughs) Just what I was going to say, too. Because here's the thing you have to remember, as you pointed out, uh, enzymes don't denature immediately. So I don't think other than some extra time for the malt to hydrate, I don't think going in low is going to help you. Because the other thing also remember is I think, uh, of course, somebody's going to call me out on this because I'm trying to pull the number out of my out of the rear recesses of my head. Uh, But if I remember correctly, barley doesn't gelatinize until the mid 140s, which means that all you're going to be doing is getting the grain wet, but you're not actually going to be freeing the starch from the matrix until you hit that 147 mark. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe the extra, uh, maybe the extra soak time will help you, you know, be more efficient, but yeah, I don't think it's going to help you get into any shorter chain sugars because that's not really going to happen until the, the enzymes can actually attack the starch. And, and keep in mind the pH plays a factor also generally a lower pH lends itself to more fermentability. So you might want to uh, keep that in mind while you're mashing in to make sure that your pH is towards the lower end of the range that you want to be in. Well, I think that gives you an idea. It's, it's Sometimes it's very tempting to go chase those mistakes, but I don't know if trying to do it completely like that's going to actually bring you any value. I think you're you're probably just better off, you know, going directly to your 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 initial strike temperature, you know, say your 147, 148, where you were talking about before, and just allowing yourself some extra soak time there. Yeah, the uh, the hotter water that you're uh, mashing in with is really not going to make a difference. Okay, that's questions, except for, hey, don't forget, next episode, all Q&A, all Q&A, all the time, every 12 episodes. So we have some questions in reserve, but if you want your question answered, get it into us, or make Denny do more work. Call us, leave us voicemail at 626-765-1AL. Or, if you're, not, if you're not tempted to do the voicemail thing, you can always email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. Yeah, and uh, email is definitely preferred because then I do less work. No, no, voicemails. Voicemails are better. <laughs> All righty, you got the quick tip for this week, buddy. Okay, based on our last episode of the Brew Files, that go big, one of the big things I think everybody always forgets, and this is your quick tip, it's going to be super quick. When you're making a big beer, and by a big beer, we mean anything above 1080, remember that more than likely you're going to encounter reduced efficiency. And you're going to particularly encounter reduced efficiency if you try and attempt to do a no-sparge version of the beer, which, by the way, is really the right way to go. It is not uncommon for your beer efficiency, your mash efficiency, to drop from, say, whatever you're in, like, say, the mid-70s or the high 80s or something like that, all the way down in somewhere into the 50s. So, compensate. Put more grain in there. It's cheap insurance, and if you go bigger, oh well, you went bigger. <laughs> yeah, and you can, uh, of course, increase your efficiency by sparging more and then boiling longer. But, you know, is it worth it just to say you got a higher efficiency? You also have to deal with pH issues as you sparge more. So, you know, just compensate, put in more grain from the beginning, and do a second runnings beer. Grain is cheap. Yep. It is compared to time for sure. Um, all right, Mr. Dincenzo. 
something other. Something other. Well, as you guys know, I've, uh, I'm totally into watching cooking shows on television. I've talked about a number of them and I'm onto a new one now. The big family cooking showdown on Netflix. Uh, Three people from a family unit, uh, can be mother, father, daughters, brothers-in-law, whatever, um, compete against each other in three rounds of cooking. And one of the things I love about it is that it is so damn British. I'm a huge fan of the, uh, the great British bake off. And I, I just love the attitude of the people, the way they help each other out. It's so different from American cooking shows where it's all cutthroat and uh, dog eat dog. The British cooking shows, the, the competition is so much friendlier. The people come off not looking like jerks. I don't know why that is. But at any rate, if you have access to Netflix, check out the Big Family Cooking Showdown. Uh, plus, there's some pretty damn interesting dishes that they're making, too. Yeah, and if you haven't actually watched The Great British Baking Show, or as it's on Netflix, it's called uh, The Great British Bake Off, you really should. It's one of the most soothing show experiences that you can that you can do. When I'm having stressful days, I can literally put that on Netflix and just sort of relax into it. You know, man, I'm exactly the same thing. In the evening after I've watched the news and I'm worried that my heart and head are going to explode, I put on the Bake Off and it just calms me right down and takes my mind off all those troubles. And uh, the family cooking showdown works the same way. Check it out. Right. I think it's time to get the duck out of here. Yeah, I think so too. I think that we've done enough to these people. Thank you for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. I hang out on a lot of beer forums, but not the More Beer Forum anymore. You can generally find me over at the AHA Forum. Drew is on the Homebrewing subreddit, as well as the Slack Homebrew channel. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, you can email me at denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's drew at experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can always leave us a voicemail at 626-765-1AL. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. Experimental Brewing.